What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. Thought I'd change it up. There we go. I mean, I don't know. Bring you the goodness. Let's yeah, let's hear the hype train, Dean. Let's yeah, hear more I feel time. Like, I feel like I was hyped on that one. Bring the energy. Bring the energy. A little more good coming at you to your hood. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just rapped. That was strange. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Dean with Zach. Welcome we're, back, everybody. We're ready welcome to back go. with Dean. You know, we're always changing. We're always evolving. That's right. Could be rapper Dean one week, folk, country. Yes. What's country Dean sound like? Oh, man. That was like me growing up. I was a huge Garth Brooks fan. Were you a Garth Brooks like, fan? Like, so much so. I think I saw him twice in concert. What was What was your song? What was like, did you have oh, a cassette? Oh, man. Cassettes. I had all the cassettes. Greatest Hits. And then uh, what is Friends in Low Places, like the extended oh, yeah, version. Yeah. Give, us a, give us a beat of that one. I got, well, I got friends. In low places, so good. Man. That's a great song. It's a great song. Yeah, right. I yeah. feel like he doesn't get like the the hype of some other country singers of that. Well, that he had that, era, you know. Yeah, yeah. He had that whole like weird thing where he became Chris Gaines for a while. Do you remember that? He was Chris Gaines. It was I, like, I remember that name, but I didn't yeah. know they were. It's like uh, Cat Stevens style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just like but, it. It, it, it was strange. It was just like him without a cowboy hat singing okay. Garth Brooks songs, but like as Chris Gaines. And I think, I don't know, some people were like, what's happening? Anyway. As Garth Brooks. It was just it? It was him the whole time. He evolved. He changed. He changed. There we go. <laughs> Which is we're, allowed. We're always changing, friends. That's Embrace right. the change. That's right. But man, uh, we, we, had a, we had a good conversation today with it's a friend. It's a wild one. Yeah. A wild one. So we had Ion Mitchell on, uh, founder of Wizard Sciences, um, Ian's a fascinating guy. He's kind of, um, he's a brilliant researcher and kind of fits the, the image of the modern mad scientist. He kind of fuses spiritual, the spirituality with the scientific, which, uh, is kind of a throwback to the Renaissance in some ways, mm. you know, like that's in the golden ages. We had like, you know, the likes of Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and, you know, I think the best scientists always fused spirituality and art with science. And uh, yeah. Ion does that uh, in, in the most beautiful kind of integrated way. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about Ion is like he is an inventor, a biochemist, pharmaceutical developer, specializing in like anti-aging stuff that he's worked with NASA, astronauts, like Olympic athletes, um, CrossFit athletes, like some of the CrossFit games athletes, which is super cool. But at the same time, as grounded in science and everything that he is, he does have this like mystical kind of spiritual side. And when we're honest, like when you look at some of the stuff you know, that science can do, but doesn't really know how, right? Which we talk about a little bit on the podcast. We know for sure that when we do this, this happens, but what's missing is like, why? That science itself has like an element of mysticism that we often downplay or overlook or just like choose not to acknowledge. And what I really admire about Ian is that he he lives into both sides of that, like the the kind of the, the factual science, double blind placebo trials, but also like that there's a level of mysticism here where we're like, wow, that is pretty cool. And um, he just has such incredible energy and really just like brought it for this conversation and I just remember Zach and I we like had to meet up later that night like we recorded during the day and like later that night we like met up for a walk and like walked down to the beach and our minds were just still blowing like as we kind of 
unpacked what Ian was talking about, and uh, it was just like it just really impacted us. So we're excited to share. Personally, I think it was one of the more transformative podcasts for for you and me as individuals. Yeah, uh, we always, you know, we I think we like to to joke about what's next. You know, like. Uh, we're always excited and curious about where our interests will, will, will go. You know, we started this podcast kind of focused on, um, you know, health in a more traditional way, mm-hmm. veganism, plant-based lifestyle, fitness, like running and, and more traditional aspects of fitness. And, and I think our curiosities where we are now, we, we didn't imagine that this is where we'd be exploring when we started the podcast. And in the same sense, I'm excited to think, where will our curiosities go in a year or two years from now? You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's fun. You know, we talk about that change with Garth Brooks. It's fun to, to embrace change and know that, uh, you know, it's easier to go with the river than try to go against it. Yeah. Yeah. And fun. Like it's fun. We always have said like our kind of our core, core pillars are just like curiosity and openness and a willingness to, to learn and try on new things and, you know, just exper- experiment and experience with all of, of what life has to offer and to follow where those things lead us. And this conversation is like a direct outsource of that way of living. Just like being, wow, man, we're so curious about this and got connected with with um, Leela Quantum, who Ian is part of, like the lead researcher and scientist for, for Leela. And we've had the conversation with Philip uh, from from Leela Quantum that you can go back and listen to. And these things, these people that popped up were just like, man, they're so interesting. Like, let's see if we can have a conversation. And so when it when it all comes to be in the world, it's just really, really fun and cool. And it it um, inspires us to just continue to, to ask the questions, like how do we continue to live as the best versions of ourselves? All right. So we had a lot of questions for Ian. We were super excited. Uh, I think... Uh, quantum physics, um, you know, quantum health, health and wellness, um, quantum energy, quantum entanglement. Um, these are all things that are, are very exciting for, for both uh, Dean and I. But I think we have a lot of questions um, in this space, trying to understand it so that we can kind of further our own journey within the, the quantum, you know, wellness world. Um so when we were in our pre-pod, we were asking Ian some of these questions and, and he shared sometimes it's easier just to, to show you so that you can understand what's possible and then you can kind of break down the language and, and once you know what's possible, I think it's easier to put the puzzle together. Should we share the story, Dean? Let's do it. Is, it, is this a, a good story to share? Kind of, it, it blew the tops off of our heads. So. Oh, yeah. All right, Dean, you want to lead it in? It's sure, just like a yeah. little podcast on its own, right? Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So Ian's like, well, I think it's easier just to show you guys. And of course, like, we're recording this over Zoom, keep in mind. So he's like, do you have like a cup of coffee or something nearby? And it's like, no, but I can quickly make one. I just like have our espresso machine here. So he's like, yeah, go make a cup of coffee and like same, same espresso shot, but like put it into two cups. I was like, okay. So Zach and I are just chatting away and I quickly hop up and make, make, you know, just run one shot of espresso and it just pours out into two cups, same shot, same beans, everything's the same. So I sit down, I was like, okay, I've got the two. And then he's like, okay, cool. Um, which one do you want me to like change? (laughs) And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Uh, sure. The one on my right, like the one in my right hand. And I kind of lifted it up and he's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then just kind of like closed his eyes 
And we, Zach and I were like, okay, we were just like waiting and just like went quiet and looked, you know, like had this look of concentration upon his face. And then after a few moments, like kind of just like did this gesture with his hand, like moving it kind of towards his screen. And it's like, okay, okay. So take a sip out of the one on your left, like the, the first one, right? Or whatever. And I was like, okay, drank it. And it was like strong, bold espresso tasting, like no milk, not even any water or anything in it. It was just straight espresso. So you can imagine it's very strong tasting. And I was like, okay, yeah, it tastes like, you know, the coffee that I make in the morning or whatever. And then on the, he said, okay, now try the one on your right. Like the one that you said to change. And I admittedly was like very skeptical. I'm like, I don't know. Like, is this just placebo? Like, am I going to think it tastes different because he's doing, like I had this air of skepticism within me. So I like kind of took it up and like smelled it and it smelled like coffee, obviously. And then I took a sip and literally I was blown away because the coffee tasted like really smooth. Like it didn't have the sharp, bitter, like kind of fruity acidity that that blend of espresso that I had normally has. It was as though it had like some, you know, oat milk or something in it to make it like creamier. Like it had a creamier taste and texture and it was like not as intense tasting. (laughs) And I was just like, what? what? And he's like, yeah, this, that's what I mean. Like, and then it went on to explain how, you know, it's just, it's just rearranging like molecules, re- bringing like reorganized different structure to those things. And then that would give it a different experience of like taste and profile and everything. And, and then, I mean, later in the conversation, you'll hear as he talks about like how this is, this is how he can operate in the world. And it is like, it is very mind bending and you know, Even still, I'm like, was it like, did I just imagine it tasted differently? But like, ah, it's wild. That's amazing. Even the smell. Yeah. The the two coffees smelt like two different brews of coffee. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, like I said, this blew our mind. And I think seeing is believing in a lot of ways. Yeah. And um, it kind of opens up the possibility of, of exploring you know, that much more is possible in this world than we might understand. And um, I just saw the movie um, Oppenheimer uh, a couple nights ago. And, uh, you know, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the the guy that kind of created the atomic bomb for, for, you know, better or for worse, you know, I think that's, that's another conversation on its own, but he, his start was in quantum physics and just kind of how he explains, like, I think, you know, we started with the idea of science and mysticism being integrated and, and, and one and the same, like the fact that all solids are made up of atoms that are separate from each other. And we perceive and understand the world to be made of all these solid objects. But if you looked at anything with, you know, uh, uh, under under a lens, you would see that it's just atoms vibrating um, in close space to each other that are not indeed solid. So mm-hmm. it's like there's so much so much wonder to go along with these sciences, and I think if we can kind of merge that that um, that magic with the science, it really becomes very exciting. Yeah, yeah. One, it's like our old adage that we always live into, like, 
it seems impossible until it isn't. And like that is maybe like a kind of encapsulation of a lot of what we talked about with, with Ian is like these things that at first you're like, that doesn't make sense. But then holding, like you said, you know, these atoms, it's just energy, it's vibration, it's movement. And once you understand science is like how to manipulate that, like you kind of, away you go. And this conversation like went from the scientific to the spiritual. Uh, it's really, really a fun one. So whatever your starting point is, uh, I encourage you to just let, listen with an open mind and um, dig into to the work that Ian does with um, Wizard Science. Uh, you can check it out at wizardsciences.com. Um, he's also like part of like the Lila quantum crew. So you can check out their work and the stuff that they're about in terms of like the quantum, the quantum world. Um, but yeah, it was a fascinating conversation. We're excited to share it with you all. Okay. One more thing. I know this is a long intro, so stick with us friends. But, um, so I ordered his wizard sciences product. Ooh, yeah. And I've like told so many people this story. It's unbelievable. I'm always trying different supplements and seeing how my body reacts to them. So I got a couple of his products, and I was excited to try Olympic RX. Um, it's kind of like a, it supports uh, antioxidant protection for the mitochondria and keeps your cells younger and helps them perform better. So he was kind of sharing like how some athletes have taken this and it like really boosted their athletic performance. So it's kind of like saving it. I had a half marathon coming up, and I wasn't really training, but... I signed up because I thought it would be fun, and I had no expectations of going fast. I was just running with my friend Nick Lowe, friend of the pod, and uh, I took the Wizard Sciences for the week leading up to kind of like uh, get the Wizard dose that it recommends on the back, and I kind of took a mega dose the day of the marathon, and um, it was unbelievable. Like I've been, if you look at my Strava, it's all public. I have been running very fast. I've just been kind of getting like couch miles in, like running like 10 to 15 kilometers a week at like a pretty cruisy, cruisy, comfortable pace. Let's call it like a 530 per kilometer pace. So if you're a runner, you know, that's like not that fast, you know, it's like pretty cruisy. And then half marathon day, I wasn't even planning on running fast. Uh, I just had like an obscene amount of energy <laughs> and I didn't fatigue. Like I finished the race. I was running with Nick and then around like 16 kilometers. I was like, I just got to go, man. Like I've got so much energy. I just got to like empty the tank and I tried to empty the tank and I still had so much energy and didn't fatigue. And I ended up running basically like a one thirty marathon, which would be like a three hour marathon pace, which is like very fast, very fast. for myself. When you were telling me like you almost didn't run because you, you almost didn't go cause you had a terrible sleep the night before, like the boys were sick or something was happening. Yeah. I slept like two hours that night, which is crazy. Yeah. So I, I think my official time was like one thirty six or something like that, which is really fast for me. Yeah. I had no fatigue. I could have kept, I felt like I could have gone way harder, yeah. way faster. Um, I was running like sub four splits for the last like three kilometers and <laughs> just like smiling the whole time laughing that like my body was doing this. There you go. So Anyways, that's, that's the Olympic RX at <laughs> wizardsciences.com. There you go. That's a non-affiliated <laughs> plug endorsement for yeah. Olympic RX from Wizard Sciences. There you go. So uh, check it out. We were so stoked to connect with Ian Mitchell. Um, let's let it roll. Let's let it roll. 
All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of A Little More Good. We're super excited today to be joined by uh, Ian Mitchell, uh, probably the closest thing we have today to a modern-day wizard. Uh, you're the lead scientist <laughs> at Wizard Sciences and Biocharged, uh, truly a brilliant researcher uh, of uh, all things health and kind of quantum fields, uh, a longevity molecule called carbon 60, which we want to get into. Um, you're an advisor to many top health and wellness brands, and uh, you're well-versed in ancient wisdom, modern science and spirituality. And we are so, so excited to dive into all of the things we've, we've already had a, an incredible, like <laughs> pre pod kind of conversation complete with lots of laughs and some wild experiments done already. Um, so it's, we're so grateful to connect with you, Ian, and um, hear some here, of your guys. wisdom and, and have you share um, some of your story and the things that you're working on in this world with, uh, with us and our, and our listeners. So welcome to a little more good. Thanks for being here Thank with you. us. Thank you very much. I very much like what you guys are doing. The, uh, the idea of trying to get out the message to, you know, do more good in the world all about that. It's kind of sort of the reason I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I think that, uh, we were just sharing, like, as, as we've kind of ourselves gotten into, um, you know, the, the realm of quantum, uh, science and all of the things around it, like we've just been so captivated by the potential and the, the seeming impossibility of these things. And yet the possibility of them. And, um, so, you know, so we know for some people listening, it might be like the first time kind of listening to some of these things and it truly is remarkable. And you, you had mentioned that even as someone who's worked on these things for years, uh, when you still have, you know, these double blind trials, it's like, what is happening when you get to see the results and you, you know, you're hoping for these results. And when it's a double blind kind of thing and, and it happens the way you're hoping it would happen, you're still like, what is going on? So it's so yeah, cool. It, it is. It's overwhelming. Actually. Some of the, some of the things like the experiment I was just telling you guys about before we went live, um, double blinded experiment done remotely. One group was in Switzerland. One group was here in Oklahoma done, you know, in, the experiment was done three separate times. It was run in quadruplicate, so we had statistical deviation and error bars. And and it it truly is, it's like the smoking gun of quantum biology. What it showed was that there is non-local interaction. We were able to change the output of cells in terms of their ATP uh, between 20 and 26% from 7,000 miles away in a double-blinded environment. And the, the other component of that that's just kind of it's a little difficult to wrap your brain around it's kind of like the double slit experiment you know where you're like oh wait and then it collapsed the waveform because someone was looking you know it's kind of that same thing because what this experiment really has to offer is that you like it's proof that there is some sort of underlying intelligence now i don't know if we're going to ever be able to quantify it maybe maybe not it, my my personal take on a lot of this stuff is that we just unfortunately we're, you know, we're kind of like the thousand part machine trying to really understand and assess the trillion part machine. I don't know that we're actually able to get to the degree of granularity that's really required to understand what's actually happening. You know, it, like when I when I'll run an analysis or something like I'll do like gas chromatograph or high pressure liquid chromatography or something and I'll and I'll get a readout. Basically, what it tells me is you've got this molecule, right? So that's like saying we have this box and we expect that this box is going to react a certain way, right? Like the same molecule is going to react the same way. 
Now, what I know from doing these experiments with the quantum behavior is that we can quantumly change things so that I read out what the molecule is and it says, yes, it's this molecule. But then the way that the molecule reacts before quantum charging and you know, as a control group and then one that's been quantum charged is entirely different, right? The reduction oxidation potential is totally different. And I'll send you guys the graph of that because it's it, it truly is just one of those things where you look at and go, how does this work? But what I always used to tell my students is that science is a point on a line, right? So the best science we have now, a thousand years in the future, people will look at that and say, that's laughable. What the hell were they thinking? You know, and, but we're doing the best we can, right? Like I know that with a lot of these things, I probably don't have the prowess to be able to figure out and quantify exactly what is transpiring, but hopefully the technology will advance and, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, some younger, sharper person will come along and go, Oh, well, that's obvious blah, 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 and connect the dots. You know, it, the thing that always comes to mind is, Nikola Tesla in like 1914 was at the IEEE convention, the International Electrical Engineering Convention. And he said, you know, in the future, people will be able to look at one another and communicate in real time across the, you know, on the other side of the world. And he got panned for making that statement. Everybody said, Tesla's nuts. Tesla's lost his mind. You know, and we do that now with FaceTime on the mm -hmm. daily. It's, it's not even a thing, right? We all know, well, duh. You know, it's uh, we we just know that that's something that can transpire very simply, very easily every day. Yeah. But a hundred years ago, people thought he was a nutter. You know, just just for coming up with a concept like that. And so, a lot of the things that we're looking at, it's the same way. Like, I can tell you that this is this compound, but I can also tell you something has changed. We don't have the ability to discern what's changed. My personal take is that there's there's actually a change in the electron spin. There's some sort of quantization of the point particle spin that's making it more or less coherent. And because of that, it's able to be either more or less active. And, and how, I, how I've tried to explain that to, to people is say, you know, you've got a briefcase and you have two of them, they're filled with gyroscopes. So you run down the hall with one and you turn a corner, no problem, because all the gyroscopes are just sitting in there. And the other, if all of the gyroscopes are aligned the same way and they're all spinning at their you know terminal velocity, you run down the hall and you try to turn the corner, you get lifted off your feet because the angular momentum, you know, it's just going to lock you in position there and you can't move that way. And so even though they look the same from the outside, the things that are variable on the inside, namely possibly just point particle spin, um, really make such a big difference that they react entirely differently, which is why I can do, you know, an assay and look at reduction oxidation potentials and say, okay, it's the same compound. I run the spec analysis before I run the spec analysis after it says, in this case, it was vitamin C. It says it's vitamin C, but the redox potential is entirely different. Well, and the only way that happens is if something that's more subtle than what we're able to measure is changing. Mm. Right. And that is kind of the, the de facto way it is. Um, so it, now it's sort of incumbent upon guys like me to try and figure this out and put, put the science behind it and say, okay, we know it's there, but, but it's really, it's difficult because you, you catch a lot of flack when you kind of stray outside of the bounds. But my take is truly, you know, if you're a scientist, it's just incumbent upon you when you find something that doesn't meet all of the rules and you, you have to pull the thread, right? It's, you know, like, like that's your job is to find the exception and go, 
wait a second, this doesn't do what we thought it did. You know, like if you drop a ball a thousand times and it falls down, great. But if you drop it one time and it just suddenly hovers in the air, well, that sort of warrants that you do some, you know, study and experimentation and at least a little bit of cursory investigation to try and figure out what the hell, you know, why, why is this ball hovering in the air? And, you know, and it doesn't happen that often, but it's the same thing. Like the circumstances under which I've seen these sort of data sets, you know, we're using quantum charging devices. And, and, and even that, when you say, oh, well, we're quantum charging it, what does that really mean, right? So from my understanding, really what we're, what we're affecting are waveforms, right? Like you guys think of yourselves as solid, right? Because if you tap something, you, you feel something against it, right? You express solidity. But really what you're feeling is electron cloud repulsion. You're just, you're pushing against things, right? And, and it's that electron cloud repulsion because you're not actually solid. So really, when you break it down, you're a waveform. You're a very complex waveform, but you're nonetheless a waveform. Um, the, the, one of the companies that I'm the chief science advisor for, Lila Quantum, uh, a couple of years ago at the, the biohacking conference, uh, the upgraded conference in Miami, I think that year, or Orlando, actually, um, the, the founder of the company asked me to develop an experiment that I could show on stage because it was the company was pretty new and people were like, meh, you know, is this real? Is it, you know, and they didn't really buy it. And he said, can you do something in real time that will show people that yes, this, this is an effect. And I said, yeah, I, I gotcha. I can come up with something. So, um, I called my friend Todd Shipman and, and this is actually, you can find this video on YouTube of us at the conference doing this. And I said, Hey man, you have a really bad shellfish allergy, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, um, I need you to do an experiment with me on stage. And Todd's like, he's super bold. He's like the ultimate biohacker. And he's like, do you need me to put crab juice in my eye? You know, <laughs> because <laughs> and it, he's also exceedingly trusting. I was like, no, I do not need you to put crab juice in your eye. But I, uh, I said, no, I, I've got an idea for this experiment. So what we did is we got on stage and I opened a can of crab meat and, you know, that has the juice around it. And I derma rolled his arm and then I put the crab juice in the derma rolled space. And it's just it was basically what I was mimicking was a dermal stamp test from an allergist. Right. You know, the old school dermal thing where you you have an allergen and you do the prick and then one of them lines up and you get a little bump. So basically you elicit a histamine response. So where I derma rolled his arm and then put the crab juice, plink, you know, instantly it lights up, turns the hives and it gets a histamine reaction. So then I put the crab juice in quantum block, and then I just lectured about waveforms because kind of the same supposition that I was just telling you guys is that we all think of ourselves as solid, but we're really just this big, fat, complicated set of waveforms. And when you have what normally you'd call a histamine reaction, what's really happening there is the histamine reaction is happening at a biochemical level. But when you go below that a couple of levels, what's really going on is there's two types of interactions you can have with waveforms. You can have constructive interactions or destructive interactions. So in the case of someone who has an allergy, you're basically eliciting an, a, a destructive interactive or interactive relationship in the waveforms. And so when you put it in the block, it actually tunes it, if you will, 
for that person's physiology. It basically sands down the rough edges of that waveform so that when it interacts with that person's waveforms, it doesn't create an issue. So I took the crab juice out after gabbing a bit about waveform dynamics, and then I derma rolled his other arm with a new derma roller, and then I put the, the crab juice on, and nothing happens, right? No reaction. And, and it's because, in one case, untreated, it was a destructive interactin, or interaction, and the other, once it was treated, it was just a constructive or less destructive interaction. So, and, you know, and I, that's actually more of a semantic thing is what, it's not really that it's a destructive interaction. It's a less constructive interaction. Mm. I mean, if I, wanted, if I wanted to be specific about it, yeah. um, but, but nonetheless, at the, at the end of the day, one arm has a histamine reaction. Three minutes later, the other arm does not have a histamine reaction. And for anybody, you know, who's ever been to an allergist, they will tell you that that's not a thing. But it is, you know, it very much is a thing because we're not exactly what we always think we are. You know, Einstein made this, uh, made this quote, and I thought it was brilliant because it's very much true to point. Um, it, he said, uh, reality is an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. And, you know, and, and that's pretty much it, right? Like we, we have these bodies and they're vibrating bits. We think of them as solid and they look solid and they, you know, we have sensations and all this stuff. But really it's all this crazy complex amalgam of all of these vibratory interactions that creates the reality around us. And so when you start to manipulate things at a very subtle level, then those things become beneficial. Now, a question I get asked a lot is, well, if you can manipulate them to beneficial effect, couldn't you manipulate them to a detrimental effect? And it's a legitimate question. Now, with some things, yes, that is entirely the case. You can. But with like all the stuff at Leela that we do, uh, one of my favorite things is that I can honestly say, no, you can't. It's boxed out the way we actually have it set up you can't elicit any sort of destructive or negative interaction. And, and this, you know, it's, it goes back to that kind of underlying intelligence. When you tap into that underlying intelligence, it's almost like tapping into a supercomputer. You give it a very specific line of code to run and you kind of say, no funny business, you know, like nothing, nothing detrimental, nothing mean, everything for the benefit of all the people that are involved in this. And it executes on that program, which is, in and of itself, you know, as a scientist, half of this stuff sounds so super woo-woo, but, eh, you know, that's the thing. I'm sure electromagnetism sounded really crazy, but then Faraday pegged down a whole lot of it and came up with some good rules to quantify it, and now we all run pretty much everything on those rules. You know, it's just, it's it sounds a little strange when you're kind of right at the, the tip of the spear, but, you know, in the future it won't. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's most um, fascinating to me about you know this like quantum science is that as you as you've said and, and that that example that you use that story of, of what you did on stage in in Orlando like really demonstrates it and like in in, in the simplest terms which is probably very reductionist but it's like we the the mystery behind it is that we know that it's having an effect. Like you can see, like you said, with the cells, like before and after, we know that there's an effect happening. We know that there's a change taking place. Look at one arm versus the other arm. And the, the kind of fascination is like, we know that something is happening, 
but we're not exactly sure what just yet. And, and there's theories around it. And I think that that to me is such an exciting thing in a world where, you know, there's so much certainty and there's so much sense of knowledge and, and we've, we've arrived, like we have iPhones and we can FaceTime around the world. And so we're kind of like at the pinnacle, we figured everything out. And yet we're just at the very beginning of understanding all that this has to offer. And I think for me, one of the things that is most exciting and most intriguing is like, holy crap, like we can figure out like, this is this works, and the question you know when we talk about like you know our the putting stuff in in the infinity block and it charges it and they're like but how and you're kind of like well it it just does like that I don't have a good explanation because that's kind of what is still mysterious about it is like it yeah it makes it, it aligns the waveform so it's better for you and like we're you know we use all these examples and stuff to 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 explain the how but part of what's fascinating about it is we're still figuring out and discovering the how, right? Yeah, a lot of this, it's funny because it always makes me think of, you know, in science, like with the Big Bang, it's kind of like, give me one miracle and then we'll take it from there and describe everything else. Yes. You know, <laughs> because, because of the very basis of this, is it charging it? Yes. Is it making it more beneficial? Yes. Can it stop histamine reactions? Yes. Can it knock out EMFs? Yes. It can do all these things, but then you kind of go, but how? Well, we're not going to talk about that, you know, and, and the reality is because we just, like I said, we don't really have the, you know, the vocabulary to really discuss it thoroughly yet. Right. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not, it's not in the kind of like the, the scientific lexicon to actually be able to drill down on this stuff and say, okay, this happens because of this and this and this and this, because in, in an infinity block, right there for all intents and purposes, plates of anodized aluminum, right? Held together, you know, in a, in a configuration, but there's no electricity. There's no magnetism. There's no photonics. There's no vibrations of any sort, right? For all intents and purposes, it looks like it's just a static chunk of metal. And that's what it looks like, but it's obviously not, right? And that's because there are things that are at a stratum that is far more subtle than what we would normally say. And that's, you know, the concept of dealing with vibration is very difficult for people to grasp because when you get out of the tangible and the very real, it's it's difficult for people because it becomes this kind of spooky, strange space where, you know, things are things are possible at a distance and you can control things at a distance and do things at a distance. And, you know, it's one thing that's very comforting though is the universe is not foolish, right? It doesn't give toddlers pistols. So, you know, it, the abilities to do those sorts of things and, and manipulate that sorts of stuff or those sorts of things, they, they really kind of only occur when people or things are at a certain level of awareness or consciousness, because otherwise the, uh, the propensity, I think, for humanity to do what humanity does and kind of blow itself apart and do detrimental things would, would rear its ugly head and, uh, you know, that wouldn't be so hot, but it, it's just, it's kind of a beautiful evolution to watch really, you know, since I'm sort of on the front lines trying to kind of, you know, grunt my way through this stuff and, you know, figure out how to, how to discern like this is this, and this is this and build a vocabulary because the more, the more that legitimate scientists start to actually do this stuff and use this stuff and see the effects, um, you know, the easier it's going to be to go, okay. And have an, have an honest conversation about it and go, Okay, obviously there's more going on than we are aware of. There's this entire different realm that's really got a lot of import. What's happening? You know, and it, it's kind of like the same pushback that you get, I think, when you go from 
Newtonian physics to quantum physics, right? Both things are real. One just describes more easily a, a larger set of things and the other more readily describes a much smaller set of things. It doesn't make either one of them wrong. It doesn't make either one of them, you know, less real. They're just, there's a certain degree of specificity that one is more suited to. And this, it's kind of like, it, it was arrived at in the case of Leela Quantum by people who were, you know, healers and seers and things like that. So this group worked backwards and then they brought me in as the token scientist to try and kind of, you know, like <laughs> quantify things and, and say, well, this is how this functions, you know. And and honestly, I, I feel very suited to that because I can kind of understand the bridge between both of those things where I, I don't question the validity of it. And I say, okay. I've seen this work. I've seen the data. I've done double-blind studies on it. I've got a lot of data that supports all of these conclusions. But I also know that these are the precepts that we typically run under. Obviously, those two things are contradictory, right? They're In a lot of cases, they're in diametric opposition. So I kind of have to go, okay, we're either completely wrong and there's a whole new set of things that have to be described, which I think is the case, or this is just mumbo jumbo and people are getting scammed all the time. Well, I know that that's not the case because at this point, you know, nobody ran in and, and, and manipulated equipment from 7,000 miles away. Nobody's, you know, messed with my luminometer or my sulfide or glow or anything like that. So I, I feel pretty confident in saying we just don't have a set of tools yet to fully understand all this stuff, but we will eventually, yeah. you know, but it, it again, it's quite likely that it won't be in, you know, our lifetime. It'll probably be down the road a ways because it's just too new, you know. As we continue to unpack and explore this conversation, I'd love to kind of get in your head and, and kind of understand what you believe to be is possible in this human experience um, for, you know, human evolution, for our own connection to Earth, for our own health and well-being. Um, just to kind of set the table for that, like I think growing up as kids, you know, we love superheroes, we love Marvel and X-Men and all these kind of fantastic beings like the Jedis and Star Trek and, um, you know, then we, we get older and we start, you know, science tells us, well, that's not possible. And then we start to read some, as we, as we reach maturity, you know, we can read books like we mentioned before, Autobiography of a Yogi, that kind of mentions all of these ancient practices and cultures all around the world where things that we would perceive as magic were just, you know, normal, uh, maybe not normal, but um, believed by the masses to be possible and, and practiced by people that understood them. And then I think with, with what I love with kind of our own exploration with quantum energy and quantum healing, it's, it's bringing back that, 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 connection to to magic and holiness but in a tangible way that you can kind of feel and unpack so um i'd love to kind of get into your head and kind of see the world that you believe to be possible uh for our for our own human evolution but also for our health and wellness so that can be you know what you've experienced what you've studied and seen um you know you have your products out uh with with the uh, wizard sciences uh, the C60 and, and all the other things that you're kind of exploring. Um, so I'd love to kind of just like drop that there and, and kind of let you to take us for a bit of a, a ride 
of what's we what's possible. Have Ninety minutes, right? <laughs> uh, any yeah, seeds? So, any seeds you want to plant so that we can, uh, you know, we can grow on our own time to get to where you and others <laughs> might be now. Well, so I will say this is this is not going to seem like the uh, the standard scientist answer, but you know, I think I, I'm a being first and a scientist second, so. Uh, so I'm going to answer based on my own personal experience. My own personal experience is that everything, you know, say an autobiography of the yogi, every bit of it completely accurate. You can do every single one of those things, every bit of them. And for the people who can't, sorry about your consciousness, um, but, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's literally just a matter of uh, evolution, right? Developing your your level of awareness to a certain point, right? Because I, I think a couple of couple of things happen on the on the path to actually being able to elicit those sort of supernormal behaviors. And in fact, when you were saying, you know, like uh, sort of like superhero kind of stuff, well, those those things that you were referencing, like in that book, they're all called cities, right? S i d h i s. And those are literally supernormal powers. And almost every one of those is spelled out in book three of a, a book called Patanjali's Yogic Sutras. And if you, you know, if you read that, it, it sounds kind of, you know, truly like you're reading the X-Men or something like that. But um, the, the reason those things aren't possible for most people is the, the level of consciousness it just isn't there. Because if you gave people those abilities and their level of consciousness isn't at a, at a point where they're going to be supremely judicious with it and only use it for the benefit of other people, then they could wreak havoc on things, right? Because let's, let's suppose for instance, and this is a real world example. Let's suppose for instance, that you could change the vibrational frequencies of something at a distance, right? Well, you can just as easily change it to be tasty or poison, right? And and make it, you know, and for that matter, you could actually just focus, you know, that same energy that you use to do that and just turn someone off like a light switch. Um, but again, the, you know, the universe not being a stupid place, it doesn't allow people to arrive at those points without having passed certain thresholds. You know, the, probably the, the best home... Um, of any that I've ever read on this is, you know, better than, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, better than the Bible, better than, you know, any, any of the, you know, the litany of Buddhist books I've read is David Hawkins' Power Versus Force. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt, single best book I've ever read because it very clearly, and I, and I, you know, I told you guys this, I like Hawkins because he was an MD, PhD, and he kind of speaks my language, right? So he's a very scientific guy. And he quantified consciousness and put it into a logarithmic scale going from zero to a thousand with zero being as low as you could go and a thousand being kind of the pinnacle of human consciousness beyond which your protoplasm literally cannot handle the amount of energy that you're flowing. And so you just explode, um, which, which, you know, going for splat because I'm so very evolved, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound so great. Um, but but on that scale, as you as you sort of pass certain metrics, um, you you do get different abilities, right? So on that scale, when you pass 500, 500 is kind of an interesting point because it's the point at which your awareness shifts and you realize that there is an underlying divinity to all things, right? And m most scientists uh, don't ever hit that, 
because we get kind of locked into the idea that everything is something I can determine with numbers and the world is deterministic. And, and frankly, that's, that's wrong. (laughs) It would be so much cleaner and tidier if I could say that we're accurate and right, but it's not. And the moment you cross over that threshold, you go, damn, I was wrong. And, you know, and that is, it's a very pervasive awareness and it, it's like walking into a room and the light switch coming on. You suddenly know it and it's no longer a mystery. You're very firmly planted in this, in the awareness of, oh, that's how that actually functions. And so then when you move a little bit farther up the scale and you hit around the 540 threshold on the Hawkins scale, you start to actually develop kind of those spontaneous, super normal capacities and um, that, that's when things get interesting. So people who are, you know, doctors and things like that, when they cross over that threshold, they'll actually become kind of very special. They'll be standouts. You know, they'll be the guys who are the, the healers and the, the people who do things that are, you know, borderline miraculous, where people start coming in droves to see them. You know, uh, you know a couple of people come to mind. Joe Dispenza comes to mind. You know, he's kind of right in that threshold. And people seek him out because he he definitively has some special abilities. He's gone past a certain threshold and he has an awareness that's not normal. Um, and then, then you go past that and then you hit a state, you know, around on, on that scale of, of about 600. And that's actually the point at which enlightenment kicks in, you know, the classical kind of enlightenment. And that's a strange point because the, the funny thing that you become very aware of is at that point, you realize you, you're suddenly overtaken with the, the concept of oneness and being connected to everything. But to me, the more humorous part is you kind of become acutely aware of, wow, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. You know, like, <laughs> like you realize that like, wow, everybody's just here learning and doing, nobody's really getting obliterated, which is, which is why I think half of the people about, who, who end up actually hitting that point, which is a scant few. It's, you know, maybe a dozen in the world. Um, half of them just check out. They'll die at that point, you know, just because you're kind of like, ah, fuck it. And you bounce <laughs> because you know, you realize, seriously, you realize like, oh, nobody's getting hurt. What's the big deal? It's all good. You know, in the most literal sense, it's all good. And you just pow, check out. Um, and then there, you know, then there's the, uh, the kind of gluttons for punishment who continue upwards on the path and go like, huh, golly, you know, that was kind of rough. I think I'm going to stick it out and try and help everybody out. Yeah, that seems like a great idea. And it, it's funny because there's, there's a lot of, you know, I won't go into it because there's a reason people don't talk about it. But there's a lot of very interesting things that happen kind of as you move along those paths that, uh, I think if they actually told you just how hard it was to do some of those things, most people would be really resigned to, you know, I think I'm just going to go to church on Sunday. I'm all good without this enlightenment thing. You know, it's uh, it's a very difficult path because in order to hit that first stage, you have to purge literally every bit of deep, dark stress and ugliness and everything else in your entire psyche it breaks down. You literally shatter into pieces and you, you will actually feel components of yourself shatter. And that's not, you know, some hyperbolic statement. That's a very literal, you actually feel yourself break into a thousand pieces. And I don't really think normal human nervous systems are designed for that kind of pain. 
it sort of pushes you to the very absolute limit of what is and what can be. Um, but then it, it rebuilds. Shockingly, you, you find yourself in this state of absolute despondence and thinking that you'll never be able to make it through the pain and the and kind of the arduous nature of it. And then lo and behold, you, you actually feel it start pulling back together and then it pulls back together. And a lot of the darkness that was intrinsic in your psyche is gone. And then it shatters again and then pulls back together. And, and that process continues until it's all purged. And literally at the point at which it's all purged and you've, you've basically taken all of the stresses that you've, you've amassed emotionally and psychically and psychologically th throughout your entire life, once every one of those is purged, then you can actually stabilize at that point, but not before. It's kind of like if you've ever looked at a state change in water, if you graph a state change in water, it's very similar to how a human evolves. You put a tremendous amount of energy in, and it kind of goes up at a slow incline just a little bit. And if you look in the pot of water, you'll see, you know, like a bubble here and a bubble there and a bubble here and a bubble there. And so there's a very uneven distribution of points of your consciousness that kind of go above the threshold of what would normally be kind of advanced states of awareness. But for the most part, it's not a consistent function, right? You have little, little random bubbles. Well, there's a point at which you've put so much energy in over so long a period of time that on the state change, when you're graphing it out, it moves hyperbolically and it hockey sticks up. And that's the moment where you're looking in the pot of boiling water and all of the little bubbles just suddenly go into a rolling boil and then everything is boiling. And if you make it through that state, that becomes a consistent and it, it's just perpetual beyond that. And it won't, it won't go back below that point. Mm -hmm. And so that's just that from that point on, that's the, the baseline of your awareness is kind of this fanned out connectivity with everything else so that you, you can, you function and you interact um, with other people because you bring you bring your own persona back, but you're very acutely aware of the fact that it is just that it's a persona and you're using it to relate to everyone else. Right. Because, you know, you're no more me and, you know, you're no more me than I am. You guys, it's just, you know, you're Zach, you're Dean, I'm Ian. And we kind of relate like that. And once your awareness crosses a certain threshold, that's how you see it actually. It's just like, Oh, it's just me in a different form, mm -hmm. you know? And so why would you ever be mean to anybody? You wouldn't, that's just, that's silly, you know? Um, and that's, you know, a little more good, right? You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the thing is that's, that's when you stabilize in the awareness of all you're really here to do is try and help, you know, because, because you do have the option of checking out, you know, at will at any moment beyond that point. So what a, what a beautiful way to see the world though. Um, it kind of puts light on like, uh, in my, in my mind, when you're talking about the boiling water, you know, reading books and histories and religions and, and, you know, spiritual context from different groups of the world. I, I kind of think of the masters and the prophets, you know, they're the ones that got past the boiling pot of water and, and were able to kind of, as history tells, relate to the world in a in a godlike way, or a a you know kind of transgress to that that holy state of of being. Yeah, I think it's uh, but but it's also there's a degree of 
servitude, you know, right? But because I remember when I was uh, when I was kind of working on that sort of stuff, I uh, I went to see uh, my friend Todd uh, because he does these combo ceremonies, you know, with the frog venom and and one of the components is this thing called sonongo, which is like basically capsaicin in your eyes. So kind of like as I had joked about self-administered pepper spray in your eyes. Well, the point at which I was at, I was wrangling with surrender, right? Because in the West, as a, as a guy in the West, you know, I run a couple of companies, I do this, I do that, you know, you, you're kind of, you have authority and, you know, and uh, you're not supposed to just by cultural, you know, dictums, you're, you're not supposed to be subordinate to other things or surrender to things. It's kind of, look down upon you kind of, ha ha, you know, puff your chest out and move forward with authority. Um, but the point at, that I was moving through was I realized that I was never going to make it to the other side of that boiling pot of water without total and full surrender, which is a very weird thing to realize that, wow, I have to be, you know, subordinate and supplicant to this, in, this entire thing, right? There's a much larger thing here than, than I, and I need to, just let myself go and let the ego go and surrender to all this. And so I, I worked on that for quite a while and it was difficult, you know, because like I said, you know, the cultural training is, is very pervasive and you, you don't, you can't very, very easily find yourself on the outside of a culture in which you're, you know, raised into, right. So it's kind of like a fish trying to understand things out of water. It just doesn't make sense. So it, it took quite a while working on the idea of, surrendering to a power much larger than myself. And so as I was doing that, I thought, how, how do I test for this? And I thought, well, if I've truly surrendered, that means I've given away everything, right? I've given away all my thoughts, all of my feelings, all of my emotions, all of my physical sensations. And then it dawned on me, I thought, ah, I'll go do Sananga, right? <laughs> right? Like I'll go subject myself to something that is basically just like the most physically difficult thing that you can imagine, you know, putting pepper spray in your eyes um, because if I've truly given away my, you know, physical sensations, then that's going to be a pretty damn good test. Right. So, so I went to see Todd and said, Hey man, um, can you do that Sananga thing on me? And he said, yeah, sure. So, you know, I laid down and he did the drops in the eyes and you know, the drops went in the eyes and I, I felt the sensations and it felt like my eyes were on fire and, you know, eventually the sensations just subsided and passed and I stood up and, and Todd was kind of perplexed and he was looking at me really strangely. I said, what? And he said, I've never seen that. And I said, well, what? And he said, well, your respiration didn't change. You didn't blink. You didn't twitch. None of your muscles moved. Your nothing, nothing changed. How is that possible? And I said, oh, because I've been working on surrender, right? Like I, you know, I had to surrender everything. And if you surrender it, you just let it go. You surrender all of it, all the sensations. And he goes, yeah, but you know, it's right there by your optic nerve. How is that possible? And I said, eh, you know, that's, that's the deal is it's no longer like in this case, it's no longer my optic nerve, right? I've surrendered it, you know? And, and that was, so that was my test. And then I did it again immediately after that to do it. And I, I said, I think I need to do it again. And it was funny because he goes, no one's ever asked to do that twice. <laughs> Which, which, and, and, you know, the thing is, you feel the sensations, right? But truly, they're no longer yours. So you just have to release them. And that's, uh, that's just the, the way it is. It's, uh, it's a necessary step in order to get past that point, you have to 
surrender and let yourself go because that that's that it's kind of funny. One of the, one of the guys who, who works for me came in a while back and he was asking me about kind of his own spiritual progress. And, and he said, listen, you know, I, I'm worried that I'm not doing this or not doing that. And he was like most people, he was thinking there's like, there's practical steps that you have to take. Like, Oh, I'm not doing my, you know, 40 minutes a day of meditation or this or that. And, and that's true. Those are good practices because they have a lot of benefits that allow you to move through the world. But in truth, the larger points and the larger things, they happen at prescribed points and you can't rush them. They occur when they're meant to occur. And so what I told him was, I said, listen, you've got a great heart. You're doing everything the right way. And don't worry about it because there's never in history been an acorn that's stressed out because it didn't go to oak tree school, right? You don't have to. You will become exactly what you're intended to become because it's the inherent potential that's within you. All that's happening is over the course of your lifespan, you're expressing the potential that's innate, you know, and when people think that, and, and, and I had this, the same thought too, and, and pursued it like this for decades, but it was, it was the wrong, it was the wrong path. Um, is that, you know, we're trying to climb up this mountain, do more and move higher and higher and elevate our consciousness. The reality is it's already there. And what we're doing is we are grasping to the mountain at the level we're at, trying not to get pulled up desperately. Like we are holding on for damn life. We are just like for dear life, we're holding on, not letting go. Because the moment you start to release those things, you actually get pulled up. Because like most things in nature, you know, the wind doesn't actually blow past you, right? It's pulled past you because things move from high to low pressure in nature. And so where there's a vacuum, Nature abhors a vacuum, things get filled up. And so in this case, the inherent potential, it's necessary for you to express it and evolve. And if you don't just try and cling to your own consciousness and your own state of awareness as it presently is expressed, you will start to expand. That's the natural progression of events. You can't do anything other than that. Now you can fight it and there really is no problem so great you can't hide from it for a while, but eventually, you know, it's going to happen because that's the course that you're on. So probably the most esoteric answer that you're going to get from a scientist anytime this week. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, just, just to kind of unpack this a little further, before we hit record, we were talking about enlightenment and the evolution of consciousness, and you, you, you mentioned the change of coherence. Can you kind of explain the change of co coherence in our, our evolution of, of consciousness? Yeah, sure. So... Kind of like I was saying that we're an amalgamation of waveforms, right? So we're this very complicated waveform. Well, as your awareness expands and you become kind of a higher level of consciousness, as you progress, you become more and more and more coherent, right? And coherence, if you think of it in terms of light, is usually what I use as an analogy because it's it, it's got a, a very obvious meaning and then kind of a subtextual meaning because light is kind of an interesting thing in terms of how people are actually created. Um, so you can have just a regular incandescent light bulb or an LED or something like that, and then you can have a laser, right? And you can, you can use the same number of emissive photons. So the same number of photons are coming off of those. But in the case of a light bulb, it's incredibly diffuse. It's disorganized. It's moving in a random, you know, kind of stochastic distribution, a random pattern. Um, whereas with a laser, 
it's all moving in the same direction at the same rate at the same frequency. So it's coherent, right? So everything is moving in one waveform, one direction all together. And so one will warm a hot dog, one will punch a hole through steel. And same amount, just a very different expression. So as a, as a, a creature, as a consciousness and an awareness, when you start to evolve, you become more and more and more coherent. And there, again, there are big points that actually occur. You know, there's, there's that point where your consciousness kind of becomes aware of, of everything sort of being an expression of the divine and having some sort of connectivity. That's a big shift, right? You become more coherent because you realize that things are connected. And so just by virtue of that, you start to sync up a little bit, right? It's kind of like the tuning fork is this function in physics called sympathetic harmonic resonance. So if you have one A440 tuning fork and another A440 tuning fork, and you ding one on the table and you hold it up, the other tuning fork will start to resonate sympathetically, right? And so once you realize that everything shares a commonality, well, then you start to resonate with everything at a subtle level. And once your awareness becomes completely immersed in the idea that you are not only sharing some commonalities, but you are the other thing, then you resonate fully with pretty much everything everywhere. And so as your awareness becomes more and more coherent, you literally, you, you have heart-brain coherence. So the hemispheres of your brain sync up. Um, you, you become both uh, more creative than most people, but also uh, more able to use kind of your, your left brain as well. So you're able to do things analytically, but also creatively. And, you know, there, there's some people who are, you know, kind of like the all-stars of that sort of stuff, like Da Vinci, um, you know, Tesla, guys like that, where they're both very creative, but also very brilliantly analytical. And as your consciousness expands, that sort of goes through the roof you actually have access to a tremendous amount of prowess that, that everybody has as inherent potential, but they just don't have access to because of the safety net, because it probably wouldn't be used in the mo most judicious ways. And so as, as you become more coherent and your brain links up and the left and right hemispheres become coherent, you can do a lot more, right? Um, you're able to work in different fields of endeavor and also at, at very high levels across multiple fields. And it's really not that tricky because you have access, you know, people always say, oh, you know, you only use, you know, 10% of your brain or something like that. Yeah, probably, probably something like that. You know, at, at differing points, you know, there, there are things that spike it up greatly to, you know, like 70, 80%. But across the board, that only occurs when people are in very deep states of meditation or, you know, uh, in one case that comes to mind, you can either, you can stimulate 80% of your cerebral cortex if you're in a meditation for, you know, like an hour, or if you have an orgasm that lasts more than three minutes. Now, <laughs> I'm not really tooled for one, but I'm much more appropriate for the other. So I kind of went the meditation path as opposed to, you know, doing, doing it the sting way and becoming the tantric master. Um, so, you know, that, that allows you to do certain things when you, when you have, those components and they're they're keyed up all the time. And you are using a tremendous amount of your capacity. Life flows more smoothly. You know, you you kind of appear to be. You have the the appearance of being sort of a mental all star, even though everybody could be. Mm. You know, you just you've got a little bit more juice, and so that's that's the coherence thing. It's uh, very handy, but it but it goes a little bit when you become when when you're in the advanced states of awareness. 
it actually changes a little bit more than that. And your entire being starts to become coherent. And the outcroppings of that are really kind of peculiar because a person's voice is coherent. And so people are actually drawn to their voice. A person's gaze is coherent. So they're drawn to their gaze. Um, you know, people have the ability to direct energy and, and manipulate things, you know, and all of that stuff just becomes very tangible. And that's just an outcropping of your consciousness moving past those, those sort of normal stages of awareness. And, you know, for me, I, I think those things are cool because they're honestly just kind of funny, you know, <laughs> like you, you in theory could do really ridiculous things like change someone's cup of water to a cup of grapefruit juice. How hilarious is that? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perhaps that's, I, I think it's, of things because it's just goofy but uh you know it's fun so. yeah well it, as you're talking you know and you mentioned earlier on i think when you're answering the, the first question like uh, and we touched on the autobiography of a yogi and you said kind of everything everything that you read there is possible right and yeah. zach and i we we have this kind of belief where you know or or like a little mantra like at first some, something may seem impossible and it is until it isn't. And, you know, Zach and I, we both, we, we would run together. Um, and so, you know, at first it seemed like, oh, running 10K, well, I could never do that. And then you just start doing a little by little. And then the next thing you know, you're like, you know what, I can do it. And then the next part is like a, the next milestone, a half marathon, marathon. And, and you can do these things that at one point seemed impossible simply by just doing them and in some ways surrendering to the fact that it's going to take some time and there might be some blisters and it might hurt and da da da. But you kind of allow yourself to discover what's possible. And it's interesting because even as you were talking there and saying, you know, kind of uh, maybe making an allusion to some of these sages and, you know, sacred, uh, holy people that we we've encountered. Right. And, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in, in church work, like uh, as a pastor for a long time and helping people discover, you know, a connection to God and everything through, through faith. And, um, I'm still just like deeply moved by when I read these sacred texts and I see the, the mystery in them and the awe. And in many ways, modern Christianity has tried to focus on certainty when to me, that is completely not the story. It's more of like the, the mystery behind all of these things. But you look at someone like a Jesus and, and I would talk to people, they'd be like, ah, oh, how do miracles though, man, I don't know if I can believe that. And I'd be like, yeah, I know. Like maybe it's an allegory for, you know, what we could do for healing. But then as I started getting curious about quantum stuff, I was like scratching my head. I'm like, wait a second though. Maybe like maybe miracles, these miracles of turning water into wine and touching someone and healing them or not even touching someone and saying, do you want to be well? And that person saying, yeah. And then them experiencing this healing. I was like, maybe Jesus was just dialed into like, quantum physics and could understand quantum healing. And when that person expressed a desire to be well, he just was like, and you're well, and it worked. And so I'm like, all of a sudden I went from trying to like demystify miracles to be like, well, maybe it was like an allegory, something that helps us understand the nature and character of God to being like, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe it was a miracle, but not in the conventional sense, but in this more sense of like, no, Jesus was like dialed in as many of these spiritual gurus and leaders are up yeah. the Hawkins scale and was able to manipulate the wavelengths that we all are to say, yeah, yeah actually, interestingly on, on that note, on the Hawkins scale, he hit a thousand. <laughs> so, so, and, and things are very different at a thousand apparently. So, <laughs> so, um, and, and I'm going to just, I'm just going to state this as a fact and I might get panned for it, but 
uh, yeah, it's not allegory, right? And you know, uh, if if you worked it just around my lab, you'd probably see some things that really don't make sense on the daily. So much so that the guys that work with me, I think, it, they're just sort of numb to it because I don't really care. You know, it's just that's more how things work in reality. And you know, here we're kind of functioning, trying to elucidate the truth of things, and so there's no reason to hide. Uh, how things actually work, you know, the things that people, and the reason I say, you know, an autobiography of Yogi, all of those cities, yeah, they're all possible, matter-of-factly. I mean, I don't even know how many have actually cropped up or happened around here, but quite a few of those, you know, I mean, things that, like the Gnostic Christians, right, In in the Christian tradition, Gnostic Christians had it going on. St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, you know, those guys they had the jam like they were they had it pegged down because they realized that it was a progressive thing where they were moving towards an awareness of christ consciousness and that expression as you move along that path all people move along the same path right you've got the you know the noble eightfold path of buddhism the eight limbs of yoga the 12 stations of the cross you know the dark night of the soul the dark night of the spirit all of those things happen and and it's just a different vernacular right so it's different cultures have a different vernacular but they're all expressing the same things that have occurred for millennia throughout humanity as our consciousness evolves so as we progress as individuals depending on where we land in the culture you know we'll we'll say like oh i'm having this thing happen and we may express it through the lens of christianity or through islam or through buddhism or through hinduism it's all immaterial man i mean it's seriously many spokes on a wheel going to the same point at the center you can call it whatever you want, but there is one thing, right? Like in science, we've got Mendeleev's periodic table of the elements, which is about as backwards as I can imagine. Um, and it, it still galls me because it's akin to like saying, oh, this is a pink carnation and this is a pink rose. They're the same, you know? It, it's like, that's not how it works, right? You know, you can have your actinides and lanthanides and da 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 and then say, right, but we have exceptions, and we have more exceptions, and some more exceptions. If you have that many exceptions, you don't get it. You're missing it, right? Your basic supposition is incorrect, which is exactly what's happening there. It's not right, right? If you want to understand that stuff, you actually have to break it down in an entirely different mechanism. And once you've done that and you see what the pattern is, there aren't exceptions to the rules because there is one rule. You know, it's not, you don't you don't need exceptions because everything actually fits and it's coherent and it's elegant. Nature is not stupid. Nature does not make those kinds of mistakes and it does not have these things where it has to have 50 exceptions. It's elegant, right? There is one form expressed through many different states doing many different things but it's one thing and when you understand that and you can actually figure out how to manipulate that and work with it feel the possibilities opens up you know i mean we've we've tried to do that here to the express purpose of helping people you know alleviating symptoms and helping people with all sorts of diseases i mean that's really what drives me is to try and take a fresh crack at you know pharmacology and and look at what's going on because one of the biggest problems in the world is just this, the state of affairs for people's physical form. I mean, it's pretty bad. You know, health is not really 
not really looked out for. I mean, I was personally, I was in a really horrific motorcycle wreck like seven months ago. And, you know, and I, my femur ended up inside of my tibia. And when I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, and it split it six inches down like a log. It, it punched it, punched the femoral condyle, which is the curve on the bottom of the femur, punched through the tibial condyle down one inch and then split the tibia down six inches. And so I, I went in and got the scans. They brought me into the ER and, you know, the orthopedic surgeon came in and kind of told me what we were going to have to do and put you under general anesthesia and cut your leg from here to here and put you back together with plates and pins and screws. And I, you know, I forget exactly what I said, but it was basically, is, is that the best you've got? And, and he said, you know, yeah, that's, that's standard of care. That's what we do for this. And I said, yeah, I'm going to pass. I think I'm just going to get discharged. And so I called my staff and said, go buy a hospital bed. You know, one of the fancy ones that lifts up and down, bring it to the lab and come to the hospital and pick me up. And and I, my collarbone was split into two pieces and my leg was completely messed up. And so my team drove over in a Toyota Sequoia and literally lifted me off of the gurney on a bed sheet, like a wounded dolphin into the back of the truck and, and brought me to the lab and set me up there. And I just rehabbed myself. And so, you know, the prognosis was 12 weeks with no pressure on your leg. You can't do anything. You won't be able to move it or put any weight on it whatsoever. At nine weeks, I had complete clearance on my x-rays. Everything was done. I was up and walking and moving around. I was actually walking well before that, but I didn't have the full clear from the orthopedic surgeon until the nine week mark, which was great. Beat the heck out of, you know, uh, the, the 12 weeks with no pressure on the leg. But it was a, it was an interesting process just because I wasn't following the normal course of events, right? You know, I actually had to vie for getting x-rays because when I went in at the seven day mark, um, my collarbone, you know, it was split in two and totally separated. And I went in at the seven day mark and it was already back together and pulling together and mending. And I said, uh, I'd like to get an x-ray of my collarbone so I can show the progress. And the orthopedic surgeon said, that's pointless. That's like a waste. There's not going to be any radiographic healing for at least three weeks and you're at day seven. And I said, well, yeah, it's already back together. And he goes, no, no, no. It's just a drop in inflammatory response. It's not doing anything. I said, I want the x-ray. He's like, it's a waste of money. And I said, my dime. I just like the x-ray. So he's like, whatever. So he sends me down the hall. I get the x-ray. 10 minutes later, he came back in holding his iPad and kind of pointing at it. He goes, do you see this? do you see this? That's new bone. And the bone had moved back into position and reconnected. And it was admittedly not the normal course of events, but the technology's there, right? If you use lasers and pulsed electromagnetic fields and stem cells, quantum energy, you can do that kind of stuff. And it's just, I mean, I, you know, I've got all the x-rays. I'll, I'll send them to you guys. It's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see just what's possible over seven days with something that's a really horrifically bad break. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's, that's the thing is it's, it's not some exclusive special thing. It's available to everybody. And that's why I say one of the worst conditions is just the overall state of affairs of, you know, human health and how we deal with that. So, you know, in my own little domain around here, I try and do things to better that. And the cornerstone of most, most of what I've been doing is, working with the quantum healing stuff and then working with carbon 60 and trying to make different serums and things like that, that will ameliorate disease of, you know, 
well, actually lots of diseases, but just kind of enhance overall physical well-being. So could we kind of dive into, I mean, my mind's blown from this whole conversation and, and, you know, by your own healing, I'm not surprised, you know, from, from the short conversation of what's possible, but my mind's nonetheless blown. Um, Could we kind of dive into kind of your pillars of, of health and wellness, uh, whether that's products from wizard sciences, whether that's, you know, quantum healing through grounding the electrons, your mitochondria, water, you know, sunlight. Um, can we kind of just give space to kind of unpack some of your pillars of health and wellness and what that looks like for yourself? Sure. Um, well, let's see. So right now, for, for myself, kind of the cornerstone has been for the past 12 years or so has been the, the carbon 60 stuff. Um, and that's so carbon 60 is just, it's an allotrope of carbon. So 60 carbon atoms clustered together in a soccer ball. And when you bind it to a fat, you can get that to move through the cell membrane. And then once it moves through the cell membrane, it delocalizes. And then the nanosphere moves to the mitochondrial membrane and it acts as an oxidative buffer, right? So, you know, it's kind of like a super antioxidant. It's a couple hundred times stronger than vitamin C. And the benefit is that it stays wedged in that mitochondrial membrane. So normally you lose a lot of potential in the electron transport chain where you're actually producing adenosine triphosphate, which is kind of like the energy currency of your cell. So where you would normally lose electrons and not be able to produce as much ATP, you actually upregulate that amount and you're kind of on the low end. I found 18% high end, about 58% uh, of an increase in ATP just by virtue of blocking system loss. That's not adding anything in, right? That's just stopping system loss. So then I kind of took it to the, the next logical step and said, okay, well, if I can catch this side of the wave and block system loss, how much more can I increase the overall amplitude of this system if I put NAD precursors in and if I put, you know, coenzymes in and if I put in components to actually bolster the different components in the electron transport chain, right? So if, if I look at each of those complexes and I'm trying to get some additive aggregate output that's much bigger than all of the smaller inputs, um, what can I do? And so I, I kind of came up with different serums, some for the brain, some for the body, where I put in, you know, NAD precursors, CoQ10, astaxanthin, uh, some proteolytic enzymes, um, PQQ, and PQQ specifically because there was so much energy output that um, if you if you overload uh, electron potentiation across a mitochondrial membrane, you'll actually pop the mitochondria like popcorn. So when you're producing that much more energy, my thought was, well, the logical way to distribute the load is to increase mitochondrial proliferation. So you, you trigger mitochondrial biogenesis, you get more mitochondria, so you're spreading out all this extra energy over a larger larger grouping. And it's kind of like you can take a four-cylinder Ford Fiesta and put NOS on it and get 600 horsepower. Can you do it? Sure. But, you know, you're probably going to blow the engine or you can take like a V12 compressor from Mercedes and just be like, oh, 600 horsepower, no problem, you know, and just rock along forever like that. So I thought, okay, more cylinders, you know, (laughs) so that was kind of that was kind of my thought was, you know, we need a bigger boat. So I just I just basically, you know, I put something in to trigger the mitochondrial biogenesis so I could actually just have more mitochondria to spread the load. 
And, and, and it works actually proof is in the pudding, right? So there, there are lots of guys in professional sports that are using this stuff because it is ridiculous just in terms of like the output performance, which makes me, makes me very happy. Actually, the, uh, the number one CrossFit team in the world right now is sponsored by myself and Puma. And they're, they're great because all four of the athletes on it are, uh, are taking the, the Olympic serum and, and it's, it works. So, and, and there's a lot of other athletes that are taking it too. There's a couple of NFL quarterbacks and, um, you know, NLB players and, or MLB rather. And it's, it's just interesting to me because people, you know, uh, where performance is critical, people use it. Navy SEALs, you know, spec ops guys. It's just, it's actually, that's kind of a funny thing. I've noticed over time that the, the places where I see the most kind of cutting edge stuff, Horse racing, spec ops, and then powerlifting, right? Like those are those are those are the places where people are like, what can I do to get an edge? And so they will try some of the at the time riskiest shit you could possibly imagine. Luckily, you know this stuff has actually got a really legit safety profile. But I have seen guys in those in those categories do some really dicey stuff over the past couple of decades, and you know it's but. But every now and then you see something, you're like, damn, wow, okay. Like PEMF, right? The pulse electromagnetic field therapy. Guys in horse racing use that stuff all the time. Actually, I just, I got a, we're putting together a new website for Wizard Sciences. And I just got a testimonial today from uh, the, the girl who won nationals for um, horse racing for a specific type of barrel racing that she does. And they, uh, they were all happy because not only are they winning for the barrel racing, but two of their horses had a disease called kissing spine and which is something that you do not come back from. But I, I gave them some serums for it and they were able to fix the horses. So the horses no longer have kissing spine, which is normally that's like blue factory. Um, so, but in this case, the horses are back in action and running again. So that's the kind of stuff that's, that's what I like is where, where I get to see things on the front lines where it's made a difference in people's lives. You know, that's, that's actually what really keeps me, keeps me going. Well, as an amateur athlete, uh, amateur runner, I can't wait to, to order some of your products and, uh, see if I can, uh, optimize my, uh, amateurness to, uh, to a new, new heights. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. If you do the Olympic serum, um, it, it just will instantly change your performance. There's a, uh, a doctor, Maya, she treat. Um, and I was on a, a show of hers a while back because she was a little skeptical about everything at first, but she had been working up and she was doing uh, deadlifts, I think at 200 pounds and she had worked up to it over a year. And the reason she's actually a, a real advocate is, um, because <laughs> she started taking the Olympic serum and went in with nothing else changed and instantly was able to deadlift 230 pounds. Let's go. And yeah. So 15% jump with nothing else changing. And so after that, she was kind of impressed and so much so that she actually really started helping me kind of get the word out and, and get it out to people because at that point she realized, wow, this is not just some fanciful thing. It actually makes a difference. Yeah. It gives people an edge. I got, I got to get some. I've been chasing the, I've been chasing the joining the thousand pound club and I'm a little bit off in my, in my deadlift. So, uh, I gotta, I gotta get on it and <laughs> get, maybe it'll give you that extra edge. 
the the one caution, like for pro athletes, that I always tell them, and and so far most everybody has listened, is that you'll be able to do more than you thought was possible. Don't <laughs> just <laughs> right control yourself because that's uh, and this is a result of me pulling my hamstring twice and tearing the muscles in my lower back once. It took it took that many times, sadly, for me to realize what was actually happening and what was going on. And so you'll be able to do kind of like ridiculous things that you wouldn't normally be able to do. Just dial it in slowly. I, I actually, I told one quarterback, I said, look, you can throw 62 yards now. Tomorrow you'll be able to throw 100 yards. Don't. Throw 75. Yeah. Call, call it good. Yeah. Just you know, count, count it like, woohoo, this is a great thing. Don't do that thing. Right. And just because there's no benefit because your your musculature can adapt rapidly. Right. It's designed to do that. But your tendons really aren't right. All of your connective tissue, your tendons and ligaments, they don't really have the requisite blood flow to do that. So you have to kind of do a lot of like stretching and plyometrics and things like that to really build them up over time. But it's an adaptive period as opposed to your musculature, which can just go, you know, full bore. And this allows your body to, to react almost as if you had hit it with norepinephrine or epinephrine and, and it just suddenly has this big boost. And it's not actually that you're stronger. It's that your muscle recruitment is going up, mm. right? So you don't, you don't add more mass, but you're literally just, you're recruiting more of your musculature. Your, your brain downregulates your muscle firing capacity to about 25 or 30% of what it actually is. And this allows you to bypass that to a certain extent. So it's when you like do that, um, you run the risk of pushing yourself to a point where you can actually cause some sort of critical failure. And, you know, it, it's just not worth it. You right. Know, just use, use the enhanced performance, call it great, rock it, you know, but, but don't try and be Captain America. It's, you know, it's not, I'm going to go for a clean and jerk of 2000 pounds. Bad idea. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't do it. It's like taking yeah. the governor off the engine and it's like, sure, it can go that fast, but it's going to burn out your engine. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Well, everything's in the red. That's got to be good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not. Yes. Yes. Oh, All right. Cool. So we got the C60. Um, you know, people can go to Wizard Sciences to to check that out. You've got some amazing products there. Um, any other pillars of of your own health and, and wellness practices? Um, ways to improve your mitochondrial health? Any of that stuff that you um, would like to share during this conversation? Yeah, well, there's there's definitely. I I would recommend um, water. You know, drink good water. That's it. Sounds so simple, but get, you know, get a, a good structuring device so that you can structure your water. Um, I would say, just say a blessing over it. That's always a good practice in and of itself. Um, but that, that has varying degrees of efficacy. Um, there's a reason people say that, ah, it's silly. That doesn't do anything. That actually does. But you, again, pretty much everything is sort of a consciousness dependent function, right? You know, like back in the day, I'm sure holy water was really holy, but that depended on who was doing, who was doing the blessing, you know, like Joe's holy water depot is probably not going to be the same as, you know, like <laughs> getting it, you know, like St. Benedict has blessed this water. It's probably better from St. Benedict than Joe's holy water depot. Um, you know, well, let's see. So water, I, I actually, I use, um, 
uh, structuring device from a water called natural or a company called natural action. And I know there's some, there's some good ones out there, but I, I particularly like that one. I think, uh, we're having, who- uh, we're having John on from natural action oh. in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great, uh, it's a great segment. Yeah. yeah. His, his products are really good. Um, he's one of the only people that I've spoken to that has a really thorough grasp of water. I actually, I felt bad. We were at a conference and I, I went to see his presentation and uh, John, you know, his background is in nuclear engineering. So he really was getting into the hardcore expression of what was happening with the water and the evolution and citing Victor Schauberger and kind of explaining how all of it worked. And he was dead on the money. It was a badass presentation, but I felt bad because I looked around and I, and I realized like, yeah, I don't think the crowd is because it was like everybody had glossy eyes. I, I, <laughs> I was like, ooh, I think I think you may have lost. Like, it would have been a phenomenal presentation if you had been doing it like, you know, a physics society or something like that. Right, right, awesome. right. Um, but I think the, the average person in that crowd was kind of like, oh, <laughs> I just want pretty good water, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway, I digress. That's uh, That product is really good. I keep it here in the lab and I use it all the time. So. Okay. Can you can you use the the infinity block? Like, what what is the effect on putting a glass of water in there? Will it have like a, a structuring kind of like coherent effect yeah, on it? Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely will. I mean, you, you know, you can literally you can do things as simple as just taking your water outside in the morning and putting it out in the sunlight. I mean, that's good for it too. Um, but yeah, putting it in an infinity block is great because it actually tunes it in specifically for your own personal physiology, and that's that's kind of an awesome setup. Um, I mean, honestly, it's kind of hard to go wrong with an infinity block. They're, they're really good. And that's part of the way we've got it set up is it's just, it's processing beneficial energy through it. That's really good and healing and healthy. And you you almost can't screw it up. You know, um, what actually, one of the only things I've seen somebody do that really cracked me up was a friend of mine with, not with an infinity block, but with a, just a quantum block set some sage in it and left the sage in it for a day. And then the next day put a cup of milk in it and took the milk out and started to drink it. And it tasted like sage <laughs> because it had, it had copied the, the vibration frequency from the sage and then imprinted it on the milk. And it's kind of funny, you, you know, you can use it to make cards and do things like that. But uh, it was just funny to me that it completely botched the milk and made it taste like sage. That is funny. So, so yeah, what happens? Because I know there's times for everything with the quantum blocks. So like, what happens if you leave something in? Say it says leave water in for sixty seconds. What happens if you leave it in for five minutes or something like that? Does it? Oh, fine. With something yeah. something like that, you're fine. Yeah. You know, it, there there aren't a whole lot of things that are really sort of out of bounds, if you will. Um, you know, if you put somebody's name in a quantum block, it actually has an effect on them. And that's something we can quantify, but you don't want to put two people's name in there because it sort of muddies the vibe, if you will, just the overlapping. And you definitely don't want to do it without asking somebody, you know, that's kind of the, the whole thing about, you know, getting permission. (laughs) It's, it's sort of, sort of a universal constant that that's something you should do. Mm. So. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, there's so there's so much. I mean, that we could we could continue to dive down on. I think in terms of just what's uh, the incredible kind of world of 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 quantum 
physics and quantum healing and all of the things. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, stands out to me is like when we were talking about the Hawkins table and, and you were mentioning, you know, anyone can kind of move up, so to speak, the the ladder, even though that's maybe inappropriate language. <laughs> we're not climbing it, but it's like once we, as you said, kind of surrender and let go. If someone's interested, like not in a hack, like how how to, but like if you were interested in trying to say, okay, I want to move myself in the direction of like a higher score on the on the Hawkins scale, like, is there a way that people can measure it tangibly? Or is it more like you kind of know once you've, once you've hit these things, you start to, like you said, you, you move into a room, it's like a light switch is turned on there. There's this new awareness that you have. Like if someone's listening to this, be like, I wonder where I am on that. What are some benchmarks that they might, they might be able to say, oh, okay, I I'm here. I'm in this zone. Or where is the average person kind of start at? Maybe is it. Um, so sadly the, the majority of humanity is below 200. Um, which is, you know, sort of a catabolic state where it's life consuming and it's not, it's not a very good space. And then, you know, there's a, you know, about 15% or so, maybe a little bit more now that's above that. And then the top end of the threshold, because it's logarithmic, the top end of the threshold actually counterbalances the bottom end of the threshold and, and sort of evens it out, you know, and, and because if you look at it from a purely physical standpoint, uh, when you have a positive thought, uh, there's more energy evoked than when you have a negative thought uh, by a couple orders of magnitude. So if you're having far more positive thoughts than negative thoughts, you counterbalance the scale. And is there a tangible way to measure that? Not really. You actually need to be around somebody who's capable of actually doing that. And there are, there are plenty of people who can do that sort of thing. There are a lot of guys who do muscle testing that are really good at it. And, you know, they can do, they can actually kind of check your calibration. Now, what I will say though, is the thing to keep in mind with that is, um, there's even with the most evolved people, there's still a, a fair degree of variability there. Um, because it, precision is really important and it's, um, it, it, let's say your consciousness is maybe at like something super high, like 800, 900 kind of range, you're probably going to be hitting in the 70 to 80% accurate range on your calibrations, you know, which, which is phenomenal because I would say the normal person is probably 20% accurate. And so, you know, don't any, anytime you're going to do something like that, my recommendation is kind of look, look for like a scatter plot. This is, this is like when I do those sorts of things, knowing that there's valuability in it and that you have a tendency to put your own personal bias on it. Um, I, I look for kind of a scatter plot. I'll ask the same question, both in the positive and the negative, then from a couple of different perspectives and I'll map out where the answers hit and then kind of look at what the most probabilistic outcome is based on what I got from that just to make sure that it's reasonably accurate and it, and it still may be off. It's, it's an incredibly good analytical tool with, with one of the, the lab techs here, um, she was working on a cancer serum and, and I had her doing an experiment to make four new cancer serums. And then I take them to the university and we do a cytotoxicity assay and actually look at the efficacy of it to see what, you know, what's the kill rate on the cancer cells in a specified period of time. And so when we made the four compounds, I just sat down and calibrated what the, what the effective rates were going to be. And it took me, I don't know, maybe a minute. 
And then, you know, and then it took two weeks to actually do the testing. And luckily I, I wrote it down on a piece of paper, showed her and took a picture of it, date stamped. And then we did the cytotox assays at the, uh, the universities and everything was specific down to the number, except one, which was off by 7%. So, you know, and, and that's the thing, they, I mean, fallibility, right? So you, you, you can't nail them all, right? Even a blind squirrel gets a nut. And so <laughs> I, I didn't do, I didn't do too poorly. I was actually pretty pleased with that. So, but, but it's great because I just wanted to know kind of ballpark where things were going to be. And it was actually specific down to the number, which, which is good because it, it, it saves a lot of time. Like my particular use of that is as a tool is sort of an analytical tool is, I kind of use it to say, okay, where most likely are things? And then I get that number so I can kind of assess. And then I actually go in and do, you know, the chromatography or the cytotoxicity assays or whatever I'm doing. But I always like to just get a feel for where kind of ballpark is before I go in and do all the testing to validate it. And so, it, and it's honestly, in terms of an analytical tool, it is remarkable to me. I mean, I, again, I get it. I understand it. I work with it all the time, but it's still kind of like, wow, how does that, you know, like the thermos, it knows what's hot and what's cold. How do it know? You know, like, <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's so remarkable to me that it, it just pegs it down that specifically that, you know, didn't have to do all the analytics and, and for one number to be off 7%, but the others to be spot on down to the number that's great. You know, I mean, I can have that much variability literally just running the assays. I mean, something can get squirreled as I'm plating a cell or something like that. So that, that component of it's very impressive to me. Um, but going back to the, the question about the, the calibrations, yeah, you kind of need to find somebody who does that um, because it's not just a, sort of your run-of-the-mill thing. And for me, it, it actually... It took six or so months of really working diligently every day on that to try and to try and actually learn how to do it and to do it. And and I will tell you that the the breaking point between me not being able to do it and being able to do it was literally um, the the day that I no longer cared what the outcome was. I lost all attachment to the outcome. Suddenly, I was able to do it, and how I validated it is I called a friend of mine in Switzerland who does that a lot and said, I think I can do it. Um, I said, look, let's, let's FaceTime. So we got on FaceTime and I said, okay, let's calibrate the level of consciousness of this person. And he said, okay. And I said, all right, we'll write our numbers down. So we both wrote our numbers down. And then on the count of three, we held them up to the screen and it was the exact same number. It was 544 for this particular person. And that's when I knew like, okay, got it. I can do this now. Um, it was, and shout out to Tom, uh, my friend in Switzerland. Um, that was, that was the day that I no longer cared. And it was funny because it, it, it was that moment. I remember the specific moment when I no longer cared what the outcome was, because I will tell you, and this is a little bit frustrating more than half the time when I'm doing that sort of thing to try and figure something out, I don't like the answer I get. Right. It, it, it runs contrary to what I as a person would like it to be. But it's immaterial at this point. I just listen, you know. Right. Yeah. And he, surrender, surrender. He, yeah. Even in asking the question, like there's kind of that that the, 
the wink and the nudge of it is, is like when you when you are at a certain point of that scale, you like it doesn't really actually matter, and you're not interested in knowing what number am I, where am I on the scale. It's like though though it's like that ego thing. Like you have to transcend your ego to realize you have to have an ego to realize you can transcend it. And then it's like yeah. that sense of like, well, I mean, does it really matter? No, it doesn't matter. And that could be a signal of like moving up the scale, so to speak. Yeah. Well, actually, the 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 thing about, you know, your question of what what's required to move up the scale, the single biggest high leverage activity that I can think of is kindness. And truly, it, it's so simple and so cheap. Doesn't cost a penny, right? Just literally go out and be kind. That's it. You know, from the, the standpoint of physics, every time you have a thought, there's either an electrical or an electrochemical potentiation that propagates a wave, right? And that wave is literally going to cascade through infinity, right? That's just, that's physics. That's the way that works. Now, the impact of it is very infinitesimally small, but it is there nonetheless. And knowing that that wave is cascading and propagating throughout infinity, you can either put a positive spin or you can put a negative spin. So if you do something that's positive and kind and loving, then it's going to propagate a good wave throughout the rest of infinity and time. That doesn't suck. You know, I mean, that's kind of <laughs> that's sort of that's that's kind of what we're after is like a whole planet of people doing that. I mean, the world would be infinitely nicer if, uh, you know, if that were the case. And it's it's kind of comical sometimes when it's not like driving in traffic. That's when you can see the expression of, of someone's consciousness. Like I literally not two hours ago was trying to drive and pass someone in a passing lane, no less. And they wouldn't let me. They sped up to block me from passing them in a passing lane. And I thought, that's remarkable. Well, why? <laughs> like, the lane is designed for passing. Why would you speed it? What sort of a front is it to this person that someone is passing them? It is just very hilarious, actually. I mean, you know, but that's that's where we are. That's, you know, that is the world in which we live. Yeah, driving, driving says a lot. Uh, you know, the emotions and anger and yeah. urges that. Uh, yeah, go to LA. The you know open season on the LA freeway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we need the quantum the quantum mantra of choose kindness, right? Just <laughs> embody kindness. Yeah, I mean that, that really is genuinely. That's that's about all you need to do, right? My grandfather used to say. And I wish I had caught the import of this when I was a little kid, but it was completely lost on me. He used to say, uh, be good, do good. The rest will take care of itself. And it's, you know, like very Southern simple wisdom, but completely apt, you know. I love that. Well, uh, I I just want to be, you know, mindful of, of, of your time and uh, just want to express my extreme gratitude for opening uh, our minds in new directions and new possibilities. And, and um, I'm excited to continue to explore kind of these seeds that you have planted in this conversation. And oh, uh, yeah, Truly. I, I hope this can be, you know, a part one and we can do a part two in the future and kind of dive deeper into some of these topics. And yeah, until then I just wanted to again, express, express my gratitude and uh, for the work that you're doing. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll wear my wizard hat next time. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the name Wizard Sciences is so perfect. I think you blend uh, like it's not. It's obviously not an accidental name where you you blend 
disbelief <laughs> with belief with what you do. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday, and this this is uh, this will sound a little bit lewd, but it just so cracked me up as we were talking about uh, about a publication, and it's going to be in one of the you know like the two big journals, and 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 he said, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing the name Wizard Sciences <laughs> on a publication like this because it's just going to be a big fat slap in the face. Oh yeah, <laughs> people are going to be like, wait, what? Yeah. But all the great ones were, you know, Da Vinci was a wizard scientist. Tesla was a wizard scientist, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, I think there's there's definitively a blending of kind of the esoteric sort of stuff. Because really, when you're pushing the bounds of science, it has the appearance of being esoteric. You know, it's that Arthur C. Clarke thing of any sufficiently advanced technology will appear as if magic to a primitive person, right? And that's that's kind of what this is, is right. Like a lot of the stuff, the quantum stuff, it seems like magic. It's not. It's accessible to everybody. Now, is it sort of spiritual? Yeah, in a sense, because when you really start tapping into that realm, you do realize that there is that connectivity between everyone and everything, everywhere and every when. And, you know, and it starts to it's kind of like, uh, you know, navigating in 4D chess land. So it's it's a little it's a little interesting, but it's very beautiful. I mean, like at its core elements it's truly beautiful. And when you realize that connectivity that everybody has, I mean, that's like oh, chef's kiss. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's like the best thing ever. You know, I love it. I know lots of people see science and religion as like two ends of a, a spectrum and, and they'll never meet. But I, I was always of the mind that it's like kind of like hand and glove. Like they go, they go so beautifully together. And I think, again, that's another thing about, you know, this, all the, all of this kind of quantum understanding is what resonates so deeply with me is like as a, as a spiritual person and as someone who's pulled toward the mystical in our, in our midst, um, but also loves, you know, seeing how it's like, wow, we can show how this works and demonstrate how this works, especially when it comes to like healing and growth. I, I love that. Like I, I can remember watching, you know, when I first discovered Neil deGrasse Tyson and, you know, my wife asked me like, what are you, what are you like looking at here? What is this? So I was like, well, I'm pretty sure this guy is like trying to make me an atheist, but I was like, it's actually kind of having the opposite effect. Like everything he's saying, I'm like, damn, this is like a validation of the foundational mystery of the universe and the cosmos, like moving together somewhere. And I, I was like, I think he would, he would be so remiss to know that it's, it's having the reverse effect. Like it's deepening my faith in all things like mystical and um, I think that that's you know part of part of the quantum world that I, I I absolutely adore is that there is this kind of merging together of like what we know scientifically, but also like what we know and have observed and have known for so long in terms of like spirituality and, and that ancient wisdom. So, so I just love yeah. that coming to the forefront. Well, I'm you know looking forward to coming back. So. Happy, happy to have done this and great to have met you guys. Sweet. Likewise, before we let you go, we have one closing question that we'd love to ask. Yeah, and that is, uh, in some ways, you've kind of already alluded, you've already alluded to it throughout the conversation. So it might just be a tap in, but take it wherever you want to go. Um, Zach and I, we, we created this podcast and we called it A Little More Good with great intention of, you know, what we wanted to see and do and kind of be about in the world. And we'd love to hear from the people we have on the show. Like, what does that phrase kind of conjure up for you? What does that mean for you when you hear a little more good. What I like to do before I go to bed every day, just in, you know, as it's not, it's not a platitude, it's literal, you know, every day, just, you don't have to make huge strides. You don't have to increase a ton, but if you do something, some little kindness, one thing that's unexpected, you know, that's unplanned, 
that you never tell anybody else about, right? That's, I think that's, uh, that's what that brings to mind for me is just doing one more, one more little thing that, you know, no one will ever necessarily know about, but it's, you know, kind of mitzvah, just good for the sake of good for everything. So. Beautiful. Ian, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Much, much cool. appreciated, my man. All right. Peace out, guys. Well, there you have it. Ian Mitchell bringing us with the wizard science. Just uh, the, the beautiful marriage of science and mystery and mysticism and wonder. Uh, amazing stories about his own experiences, abilities, uh, talking the Hawkins scale. I mean, it was honestly like a mind-blowing episode. I know, you know, I will revisit it again and again to just sit with it and allow myself to be kind of just open to the beauty and mystery of of this incredible science. Mm -hmm. The wonders of science and spirituality Mm -hmm. and how they're not so, uh, you know, I feel like science, uh, spirituality is always like a little bit ahead of science and then like science comes along and like proves like all these like spiritual practices are like good for us and we're like aha uh-huh, yes yeah now that science says it breath work yeah, you know, yeah medita- meditation meditation yeah. these are these are things that are good for us and yeah you know grounding so, yeah. and all these other things that are ancient practices meanwhile like the monks in monasteries keeping up traditions for thousands of years are like hey welcome to the party yeah <laughs> right yes here here's a cushion sit down there we yeah, go. So we, good. we talk about both and uh, yeah, Ian was a real treat to connect with. I think, uh, you know, that's a conversation that's going to resonate with us for, for some time from now. And we'll see where that uh, ripple continues to, to go. Yep, definitely. If you, uh, if you liked what you heard, we'd be very happy for you to not only one, leave a review uh, wherever you listen, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, um, as well as share this episode with a friend. If you were like, man, this is kind of wild. I never thought about this stuff. This is something I never heard of or it's new to me. Um, share with a friend. It's always fun to discuss, you know, be like you listen to it. Let's go for a walk or let's go for a jog or go for a coffee and, and talk about it. Um, definitely check out Ian Mitchell um, and Wizard Sciences. You visit, visit wizardsciences.com um, to see more of what he's about there. And um, yeah, just thank you for, for making it this far and for listening through. There we go. All right. Thanks, everyone. Same time, same place next week. Stay good, y'all. Peace. <laughs>